Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. The episode today is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Richard Lazarus, a professor at Harvard Law School and author of the book, The Making of Environmental Law, which is recently out in its second edition. Hi, Richard. Thanks for joining me today. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So one of the big takeaways that I've always gotten from the making of environmental law, both the the first and the second edition, is your view that kind of environmental law is hard. It's a particularly hard area of of law and policy. Um, Do you you think, first, just get us started, do you you think that's a fair reading? Is it accurate characterization of of the view that, that you have in the book? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and I try to tease out uh, the reasons why. It's something I thought a lot about when I started teaching, actually now 40 years ago. Um, and I thought a lot of people just think it's hard because, like, they're good guys and bad guys. Uh, and I think it's much more complicated than that. And I think mm-hmm. they're just endemic reasons, structural reasons for why it's hard, uh, rooted in the nature of environmental science, environmental economics, and, and how they collide with our lawmaking systems. And so, so, um, so you talk in the book about kind of the spatial dimensions and the temporal dimensions. So, so maybe we could just get on the table. What, what some of the, the kind of particular complexities of, of environmental, of the, let's say of the environmental domain as a subject of, of law and policy. Yeah. Well, I think that when it comes down to it, it's sort of pretty simple. Uh, and that is that our ecosystem by its nature spreads out cause and effect over time and space. Uh, so what that means is you have activities in one place at one time that have consequences in another place at another time. Uh, and that can be fairly simple, like you have a, a power plant, uh, which is discharging you know, pollutants into a waterway, which flows into other neighborhoods. It can be a, a power plant or any kind of a manufacturing facility, which puts emissions up into the air uh, and you know, has impacts uh, in other places where the activity is located. It can be, a, you know, picking up hazardous waste or solid waste and taking a truck from one place to another place. And, and if you look at sort of the history of environmental law, you often see that it's not coincident that a lot of activities happen at borders. A lot of uh, polluting facilities are in one jurisdiction and they cause pollution in another jurisdiction. Uh, and so there's this temporal and spatial separation, which makes it hard to make law because you're, you're regulating some people at one place in time for the benefit of another group of people at another place in time. And, and that can be a few feet. It can be miles. It can be thousands of miles. It can be a few days. Or it can be, as we see with climate change, it can be hundreds of years. And it's hard for any lawmaking system to deal with that because you're basically imposing the cost of regulation on one group for the benefit of another group. And that means environmental law is inherently redistributional. Uh, And that's hard. Uh, And when you add major separation over time and space, and that's just what the ecosystem requires. You can't work your way around it. Uh, And that's really hard uh, because it's also separating time and space means there's a lot of scientific uncertainty in what's gonna happen over time and space uh, as well. and so you put those ingredients together, it makes it hard to pass the laws and hard to administer them over time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, um, all this is true. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, for my own personal story, part of what attracted me to environmental law, the environmental domain was at least my first impression that there was something actually easy about it, at least theoretically, that, you know, environmental law is like super well justified. You know, there's kind of classic externalities, you know, almost any moral theory is going to have a place for, unless, uh, even extreme libertarians likely will have a place for at least some environmental law. Um, you know, when I was first uh, kind of engaged in environmental law and politics, I was attracted to the fact that there was at least some degree of seeming social consensus um, that that we cared about the environment, that we wanted to protect it. Um, as I learned more, you know, it seemed that there were some clear tools that we could use that would be very effective. Uh, but of course, in reality, there's there's a lot of space. So the, all of that may be true that 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 there's certain some things about environmental law that is easy. But of course, there's a huge amount of space between 
um, you know, those, the, those theoretical points and, and the practice of environmental law. And, and do you see that as mostly a result of the, the distributional consequences of environmental policy that tends to have um, important distributional consequences? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, uh, I think for the first 20 years or so, I tend to think more about sort of macro issues, and that is what's the right level of pollution? Look mm-hmm. at the costs, look at the benefits, uh, and figure out what the right level should be. And then you had to deal with obvious problems of, you know, whether you have a common denominator to compare the costs and benefits and whether there's some uncertainties, which made it hard to measure the value. Uh, And then it was over time I started focusing more on the redistributional side. Uh, And the fact is environmental law doesn't just have to deal with the hard issue of how do you compare the costs and benefits and figure out the right level of pollution. It has to deal with the more fundamental question of the costs go to some, the benefits go to others. Uh, and that's really hard for any kind of lawmaking system to deal with. And then it turns out it's really hard for our lawmaking system uh, mm-hmm. to deal with it. Uh, there's a fundamental sort of challenge to sort of democratic institutions, to sort of small national government built into our constitution, larger state and local governments, to deal with these kinds of redistributions over time and space. And it's something I began to focus on in the 90s a lot. Uh, when I thought more about environmental justice, and then climate change just blows the whole thing apart. Uh, it, it's sort of the, the worst nightmare uh, for environmental lawmaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's all of the problems just amplified. Absolutely. So, so just you know, in terms of that's a, it's an interesting personal history of kind of first thinking about the the as you said the macro questions or we, maybe the aggregate kind of questions, you know, what, what's right from the perspective of society as a whole. And then and over time kind of getting attracted to and recognizing the importance of distribution and uh, distributional questions. So, so would you say that you were kind of equally attracted to all of this or that, you know, you actually find the hardness of environmental law, um, you know, it might be frustrating sometimes, but intellectually interesting, or is it just look, you know, from your own, you know, motivation um, to to continue working in the field, and you know, obviously, you've got a a wonderful career um, over over many years. Um, do you do you find the difficulty motivating, or is it just like look? darn it, we need to fix these problems and it might be hard, and, but we have to plow through and, and the difficulties are just something we have to figure out how to manage as best we can. Yeah, I find it really motivating, right? I mean, I'm an academic, I'm a scholar. Uh, I find it very motivating. And I think teaching about it so people are more sophisticated and thinking about what makes it hard makes them better environmental lawyers uh, as well and, and better policymakers. Uh, it is certainly part of what I find fascinating uh, and it explains things to me. And I think it makes me a, a better teacher, I hope. Uh, and because, as you know, if you look at the statutes and the regulations, they're just a mess, right? I mean, it's incredibly complicated. It's very dense, very technical. And if you provide the students and lawyers with some framework for understanding why it's such a riddle, why there's so many anomalies to it, I think a lot of it has to do with the challenge of environmental lawmaking itself, which makes more sense of the Clean Air Act, make more sense of the Clean Water Act, uh, make more sense of laws like Superfund laws. I think if people understand why it's hard, uh, then it's easier to understand why it looks the way it does. Uh, it makes it easier then to figure out, well, how, what do we need to do to try to change it over time? But for me as an academic, I find it incredibly intellectually uh, interesting. Uh, and I focus a lot as a result on sort of fairness issues. I mean, I think... What a lot of environmentalists don't do uh, is grapple with the fact that there is some fairness issues here and you need to address them uh, and not ignore them. Uh, Because if you don't, uh, we're not going to get the progress we need if we ignore the fact that these distributional consequences do mean that while society as a whole may be much better off, there are people who are are hit uh, by the failure to address these issues and people are hit uh, when we address them. And if you don't take those fairness distributional issues into account, uh, environmental law is not going to make the progress it needs to make. Yeah. And, you know, um, just uh, uh, reflecting on what kind of a point you made earlier is that the, the kind of mismatch between our democratic institutions, um, may, maybe especially that we have in the U.S., but uh, but generally political institutions broadly, um, you know, the kind of the spatial dimensions, the temporal dimensions, 
um, you know, our particular system of, of federalism, of uh, kind of very difficult lawmaking, checks and balances, judicial oversight of the um, administrative state and, and so on, that these are, these are very tricky um, uh, uh, kind of institutional, it's a, it's a tricky institutional environment um, to, to construct environmental law in particular. Um, now, you know, after, you know, you've, you've been at it for a while and you just completed this, um, the second edition of this, you know, kind of broad overview of environmental law in the States. Is your sense optimistic that, you know, as you know, we've, we've managed, we, you know, it's not perfect, but we've uh, done reasonably well at, at addressing many different environmental um, problems, obviously progress to be made, except for, you know, climate change, and, which is the biggest environmental threat of our time. And then other, obviously other global threats, um, non-point source pollution for water has been, you know, a huge challenge that we haven't made a ton of progress on. So, so do you, are you optimistic that we can still kind of work within the existing apparatus of, uh, of, institutions that we have in, in the U.S. And, and continue to make progress? Or do you think at some level that we've reached, a, you know, we've kind of gotten as far as we can with the institutions that we have and that deeper um, environmental change is going gonna, is gonna to require some structural change in, in, the, in our system of government, which isn't good news because that's hard, you know, that would be hard to, to come across. Pretty hard to pull off. I, let me put it this way. I tend to be optimistic and hopeful by, by nature. Uh, some people may think, sort of naively so, uh, but I do. I, I can't say I'm as optimistic now as I was when I published the first edition. Uh, it came out in 2004, but I really completed writing it in about 2000 or 2001. And that's partly why I wrote the second edition. I had no plans to write a second edition. And then things happened after the second edition, after 2000, which surprised me. And it made me want to rethink things. If, if you went back to the first edition, I really thought uh, that as we entered the new millennium in 2000, I thought that things were settling in a very positive way, uh, that you actually had the environmental laws and protection laws of the, of the first three decades, 70s, 80s, and 90s, which were very disruptive, right, of economic interest, investment, expectation, and property rights. I thought by the time we hit 2000, things had settled in the legal landscape. And then actually efforts to take those laws out were more disruptive than efforts to keep them in. And the laws were, had been enormously successful. So I thought things were sort of settling in a positive direction. Even on the climate issue, it struck me there was enormous potential for coherence and harmony. Uh, you had, you know, you had the Bush administration, which comes in uh, just when I'm publishing this book. I mean, George Bush ran in 2000, saying he would regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, you had John McCain uh, holding the first rule of Senate hearings on climate change, a major climate hawk. Uh, you had people joining the Bush administration who believed strongly in the climate is issue. Christine Todd Whitman, uh, former governor of New Jersey, took the job at EPA because she believed in it. Uh, you had Paul O'Neill, Secretary of Treasury, who was a climate hawk. Uh, so was Secretary of State uh, you know, Colin Powell and Secretary, uh, sorry, the National Security Advisor, Colin Rice. There was a real movement. And I thought it was pretty confident that we were going to have Republican Democrats come together. Not long after that, you know, Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi did mm -hmm. a joint ad on television. Uh, they disagreed about many things, but they agreed about the importance of addressing climate change. So I really saw then in the early 2000s a settling uh, of the issue. Uh, and that blew apart. Uh, it blew apart quickly. Uh, first, during the first two years of the Obama administration, when they tried to really push the issue in Congress, and the Tea Party explosion response, uh, which was focused on climate issues, among others, uh, you know, blew apart that coalition, made impossible any kind of national legislation when we all thought it was going to happen. And then election of Trump, uh, who campaigned on climate change. He campaigned more environmental issues than any president mm -hmm. candidate ever had before. He campaigned on it and he won in part because of it. Uh, and so that made me think, all right, I need to rethink this. So it was in 2016 that I decided uh, that I needed to think about doing uh, a new edition of the book because a lot of my thinking turned out to be uh, sort of too naive. 
uh, about where our country was, where consensus was. Uh, so I can't say I'm as optimistic now as I was then. I tend by my nature to be pretty optimistic, uh, but certainly the climate issue has been a major wake-up call uh, in terms of how hard these issues are uh, to address politically in our, in our country. And I think they ultimately have to be addressed politically. I don't think we can assume the courts are going to save us, as many people think they can. I don't think they will. We have to do it politically. Yeah, I think uh, folks who think the courts are going to save us probably not paying very close attention to the courts that we actually have. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're back in the 1960s. They're back to the Warren Court. Uh, they're back to Thurgood Marshall. They all think they're going to be Thurgood Marshall. And there's going to be some you know, extraordinary ruling, which is going to write us. The courts aren't even remotely there uh, right now, certainly the U.S. Supreme Court. Even then, right, it was a good catalyst, Brown v. Board of Education. But it's not like we got rid of racial right. discrimination through one judicial decision either. Uh, it's taken a lot of legislation over time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, thinking about the, the, that change, right? The, you know, casting our minds back to, to 2000 or you know, to even 2008, 2008 election, right? You had um, you know, both candidates, both the, right. the major party candidates were serious about climate change. I sometimes think about what would have happened <laughs> if uh, John McCain had been president. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and uh, it's just an interesting thing to, to consider. You'd have a Republican president who was a climate hawk. You'd have a Democratic Congress. Um, maybe it's not worth thinking too hard about that, but um, but it's but it is interesting to back then. You you had what seemed to be much more at least elite consensus. Um, now, obviously, we've seen this. The polarization that we have now is part of a process. I don't know if it's the end of a process, but it has, the process goes back some time. Um, and so what, what do you, so, you know, this, we, you know, the story broadly is there was more, um, you know, there was a great deal of bipartisan agreement about environmental issues. As you note in the book, you know, that can be overstated, especially Nixon's um, commitment to environmental issues. Um, but there was, I mean, the, within the Republican parties, the, the party there was uh, at that time and, and for years afterwards, there were many uh, folks who were strongly committed to environmental issues, both elites and within the base. Um, and that's really changed. So what, what do you think of a, are the main drivers? Um, if, if we think of polarization on environmental issues as one of the defining factors, features of this issue these days, um, what do you, what, how did that come about? Like what, what are the, uh, the factors that you see as, as driving that kind of almost hydraulic increase in polarization over time? Yeah, it's, and it's very frustrating. Uh, but I think that one of the drivers are really distributional issues. Uh, and the fact that some uh, very powerful economic forces on the, the mining industry and sometimes the, in the fossil fuel industry at large, uh, they took advantage um, of quite effectively uh, of those distributional differences uh, to focus on, on, on people in, in communities across the country to convince them this was a major problem. Certainly, you know, if you look at the 2000 election itself, uh, people always think Florida made the difference. I always say West Virginia made the difference. Uh, West Virginia went Republican for the first time uh, in decades uh, in 2000. And the coal industry is why they did. Uh, they viewed, viewed Al Gore uh, as, a, as a threat. Uh, the day after the House finally passed the climate legislation in June 2009, I have to be traveling back in my home area of central Illinois and central Indiana. And that next day, I heard all these commentaries on the local radios as I drove about how that was going to increase people's uh, utility electric electric rates and what it was going to do to uh, farming communities and rural communities across the country and employment. Uh, I, I think that worked. I think it worked effectively. Uh, and it really helped create this notion uh, that environmental laws and climate in particular uh, was were hurting individuals. Uh, I think there was a a lot of powerful short-term economic interests would fuel that. Uh, I think uh, there was a lot of uh, acceptance of it uh, by government, and, and by, sorry, not by government, uh, by local people, local communities, and, and acting in, in good faith. I mean, they, they believed it and they worried uh, about it. And I fault uh, the Democrats um, in part for how they tried to sell, sell the climate issue uh, about sort of smart versus dumb, 
good versus bad, uh, and not taking into account the fact that there really are serious distributional consequences. And you do need to, when you try to do something that's significant and disruptive for people in their lives and their jobs, you need to make that part of the package in the first entrance. Um, the, the class example I always give of just a complete misstep uh, was Inconvenient Truth. When that mm-hmm. documentary came out, uh, I walked out furious. And everyone else was like cheering. I hated that documentary. Uh, it began... Uh, with showing the Florida election dispute. Uh It showed uh, counting votes in Florida. So they immediately equated climate change with Al Gore Uh uh, and and politics. And then the next scene is Al Gore standing on a stage. And what's he doing? He's standing on the stage lecturing the American people about the truth. Uh Uh, And he's telling them about what he first learned about this, where? at Harvard University, at Harvard College. Uh, It's like a disaster, right? It's a complete disaster. Uh, It's all making about Al Gore. It's making about what he learned at Harvard uh, and how he's going to tell the American people the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just not how you sell something. Uh, Make it about opportunity. Make it about dealing with people in their lives, in local communities across the country. The distributional consequences they're going to feel because of climate change uh, and make it about things that can be done to address their needs as you transition out of such a carbon intensive uh, economy. Uh, and environmentalists stumble uh, on that. The same way they stumbled on environmental justice for a long time, they stumbled on the real fairness issues that good environmental protection laws implicate. Uh, and climate change, uh, I think we, we failed on that. We let it be captured uh, by the Tea Party folks, funded, uh, you know, by just short-term economic interests in the fossil fuel industry, uh, who just saw a political opportunity and they very effectively uh, exploited it uh, to the detriment. So they, they've made environmental law, they've helped make it a very, a very polarized issue. You know, that existed before, right? It existed in the 1990s is when the polarization happened. Uh, but it's gone, uh, you, know, uh, in, you know, in a very viral way uh and malignant ever since then yeah no it's really gone through the roof and and one of the the it's it's very interesting perspective on inconvenient truth i mean it is very uh in retrospect almost obvious that you know let's just say a non-ideal messenger for the cause of building social consensus on any issue is a failed presidential candidate, right? right? It's just it's just not because th- that person is associated with one particular political party, and everything is just going to read as part of a of a campaign after that. So, right. so that's particularly tricky. One of the one of the um, when we talk about polarization, right? What we're kind of speaking about specifically is the differences between the parties, inter-party difference on environmental issues. There was, oh, there's always been disagreement, right? So I think some people can be confused about, you know, um, the difference between those things. You know, we we don't agree on lots of things, but then certain particular issues become very polarized, which is to say they line up with partisan affiliation. So, you know, we might say like, and there's just something interesting about the story because within the Democratic Party, there was let's if we kind of rewind a little bit, there was a lot of contestation about environmental issues. And within the Republican Party, there was contestation. So what we had was kind of intra-party disagreement. So in the Democratic Party, you had... Um, you know, you, t- you spoke about West Virginia, the the coal miners unions. They were never going to be huge fans of um, stringent environmental controls. Um, automobile workers and right. unions have been, you know, serious have lined up in a serious way against environmental organizations in the past. Generally, you know, you know, working class voters, you know, who care about pocketbook issues. And when you talk about electricity prices, um, it's going to resonate with them. And, you know, the, traditionally these were, were constituencies of the, envir- of the um, Democratic Party. And on the Republican side, you had the kind of patrician, you know, folks who care, internationalist, kind of globally oriented right. folks, folks who cared about, um, you know, they had big, you know, summer homes up in the uh, up in the Adirondacks or whatever, uh, you know, that's, but also people that live in rural areas. And then you had the industrialists and uh, and folks who 
Um, you know, we're, we're worried about regulatory costs. And, and over time, that difference kind of, be, you know, within the parties tra- really translated into differences between the parties. And, and you mentioned um, a couple of actors out there, right? There's kind of fossil fuel interests. Um, there's the environmental groups and, and you mentioned them stumbling. I mean, I wonder one, um, I'm curious about what you think about um, about one theory that I've heard about polarization, mm-hmm. which is that um, the, re- the Republican leaders of the Republican Party eventually decided that they were never going to get the environmental vote. <laughs> that, um, you know, after, say, George H.W. Bush, who had done, you know, a fair amount on environmental issues, was very good for a Republican, let's just say that. Um, and then the environmental community basically endorsed and, and went strong behind Bill Clinton, who was really not well-known. And then of course, as an environmentalist. And was an environmental disaster. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And of course, Al Gore was on the ticket, but he was the vice president and, you know, right. nobody really focuses on the vice president. So, so yeah, I'm curious if you think there were strategic missteps or this is again, just part and parcel of broader social processes that, that no one really could have done anything differently about. Yeah, I think it's a little both. I mean, part of it is, you know, we, we did lose generally Southern Democrats and Northeast Republicans. Uh, and that wasn't just environmental. Uh, we used to have, you know, conservative, more conservative Democratic senators from the South. Uh, we had more liberal Republican senators from the Northeast, right? And both of those have become sort of endangered, if not almost extinct species. Uh, so you would see in the, in the 1970s, you know, these Republicans playing huge roles uh, in maintaining and passing the environmental laws of those times. Uh, you know, at Stafford, you had Chafee uh, from New Hampshire uh, and Vermont and from Rhode Island. You, you had Howard Baker, right, uh, from Tennessee, um, a Republican being a champion of a lot of these issues. You had, you know, conservative Democratic members of the House and the Senate. Uh, you know, Jimmy Witten, I think he was from Alabama uh, and the South, uh, who were fairly skeptical uh, of, the, of these laws. Uh, so you had much more sort of give and take and debate within within the parties. Uh, and then because of civil rights of the rest, LBJ sort of said when he signed the Civil Rights of Act of 1964, he famously said, there goes the Democratic South forever uh, as a result. So you did have these, I think, more general trends uh, beyond it, uh, beyond environmental law, which happened uh, in this country. Uh, but I do think um, the unwillingness of environmentalists and their sort of embrace uh, of the Democrats uh, and their embrace of all liberal issues sort of coming together played a, a contributing role here. I mean, it's why Richard Nixon, uh, after 1970, basically says that, you know, that's it. It didn't work, right? It's just not a good political issue. I'm getting nothing. I got nothing for it. I did NEPA. I did the Clean Air Act of 1970. I gave this incredible environmental message in February of 1970. I got nothing for this issue, right? That's what the Nixon papers show him saying to his you know, chief of staff and advisor, uh, you know, uh, Ehrlichman and Haldeman. He said, I got nothing for this. We need to get off of this issue. It's not a good issue. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a good political issue. People don't run uh, on sort of, rest- people can't win by convincing American people to do less. They went on freedom from government. Uh, uh-huh. so, and then Bush, who I think was an honest uh, environmental president, again, Northeast Republican, you know, from Texas, but he grew up with Northeast Republican, he vacationed in, in Maine. This is you know George H.W. Uh, Bush. He runs to be the environmental president. He's the uh-huh. first one who does. Uh, he campaigns against uh, Michael Dukakis with ads showing how dirty Boston Harbor was. Uh-huh. Uh, he appoints his... his Secretary, sorry, his head of EPA, Bill Riley, a complete Northeast Republican uh, environmentalist who had been president of the Conservation uh, Foundation in D.C., ardent environmentalist. And they championed the Clean Air Act of 1990, this amazing law. Uh, and they push hard. They work together with EDF to get that law passed. It's a fabulous law, about 300 pages long compared to the Clean Air Act of 1970, which is about 30 pages long. And what does Bush get for it? Nothing. Uh-huh. He gets no political payback uh, for it uh, from liberals and from environmentalists. So he pivots, right? He pivots away from it. And he pivots back to the industry uh, base. Uh, when the Democrats nominated Bill Clinton 
to be president of the United States. The Sierra Club chapter in Arkansas resigned from the National Sierra Club in protest. The Sierra Club endorsed Bill Clinton because he didn't have an environmental bone in his body uh, as, as governor of Arkansas. That's what reason he picked Al Gore uh, to sort of you know give himself a little bit of credibility uh, on environmental uh, issues. Uh, but in the early 90s, both Democrats and Republicans sort of went to their opposite sides, uh, and they've been there, uh, you know, ever, ever since. Uh, yeah. And it's a disaster. It's really been a disaster uh, for the country because uh, these issues, as you know and I know, they shouldn't be red and blue. Uh, sometimes they should be downstream and upstream or downstream, downwind and upwind uh, as the wind blows and the water flows with their distant distributional concerns. They've all become political uh, ever since. Uh, and they undermined you know, honest discourse. And even we thought we'd have it in 2008, 2009 with climate, it ultimately uh, couldn't survive and it helped to elect, right, one of the most incompetent uh, and threatening presidents of the United States, uh, Donald Trump in 2016, environmental law played a role in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it is, it is dispiriting and, and, but it is also, it's interesting to reflect on, you know, both as you kind of noted, the, it's just the big structural changes in American politics over this period of time. And, and also some of the, yeah, also some of the strategic decisions. So yeah. I, at, at the same kind of, you know, timeline that we've been talking about, um, uh, you know, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties, um, that, at least set the seeds for the current current dynamic that we've seen in the in the subsequent or in the past twenty years. You mentioned it, have mentioned it a couple of times, so I want to dig into it. Is the is the role of environmental justice, right? So that that's changed a lot. Um, so so going back um, to the early days of the environmental movement, as you note in the book, um, and I think is always a fascinating thing to to bring up in classes. There was actually a, it wasn't obvious that. Uh, the civil rights movement and the environment and the environmental movement were, you know, heading for for friendship. Let's just say um, there was real tension. There was there was concern that um, environmental advocacy, advocacy, concern over environmental issues was drawing attention away from concerns right. of Black people, concerns about social justice, concerns about poverty in cities. Um, you know, there's something, you know, maybe troubling about uh, certain elements of, of the environmental movement, how, how they frame issues of clean versus not clean, the kinds of issues that were focused on, the emphasis on kind of the suburbs and, you know, that kind of pristine environment. Um, obviously, there's a lot of weird discourse around Native Americans in early, you know, at, at right. this, this period of time. So, um, so yeah, so it was, you know, there was from the very beginning kind of tensions. Um, and again, this is kind of within the reformulated, if we think of the Democratic Party as the party of civil rights. So that's obviously post LBJ um, kind of version of the Dem Democratic Party. So there was there was a great deal of tension there. I, I mean, how do, how do you thumbnail that story of how we get from yeah. there through the, uh, you know, through a long period of, 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 back and forth to kind of the, what I think is fair to say of, as really a rise in, in the prominence of environmental justice, the working pretty, pretty closely together of the, of the big greens, the Biden administration has really placed environmental justice at the center of its environmental um, approach. Yeah, so this is interesting, and it's not something discussed as much detail in my book as I wish, because it's not an autobiography. Um, but um, for me, uh, sort of, I think it was fall of 89, spring of 1990, I was in the law school faculty at WashU, and I had a complete wake-up call, right? Complete wake-up call on, on these issues of environmental justice. I mean, I was sort of like your classic person, uh, in young environmentalist. I went to undergrad, University of Illinois. I decided I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. So I actually got a bachelor's of science degree in chemistry, a bachelor's of arts degree in economics, two different degrees, all to do it. All I did was environmental law in college. Uh, what I did in law school at Harvard was environmental law. And then I was an academic. I did environmental law. I knew everything about environmental law. I mean, everything uh, about it. I was completely immersed in it as a practitioner and as a, a scholar and teacher. And then a guy named Kevin Brown walked into my hazardous waste class uh, in 1989 at WashU, uh, African-American from Northwestern University undergrad. Kevin walked to my office. It was a seminar I was teaching on hazardous waste law. At the end of class, he walked up to me 
And he, had, he wanted to talk about what paper he was thinking of writing for the seminar. And I said, well, what are you thinking about, Kevin? He said, well, I'm really interested in the idea that maybe hazardous waste sites uh, and toxic issues are more in black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods. Uh, and I looked at him and I thought to myself, huh, I've never thought about that. Huh. I've never thought about it. Um, and I done, I done the first Superfund joint civil liability case at DOJ, the ChemDot case. I was immersed in those issues. And I thought, I've never thought about that. Uh, Kevin, why don't you go see what you can find? I ran to Kevin a week later at, during the weekend at the library, which is where our offices were. And I said, what did you find? He said, I couldn't find anything at all. Huh. I said, Kevin, where are, you, where, are you, where are you looking? He said, here in the law library. He said, Kevin, it was in the law library. I'd know about it. Go to the main library. Go to Olin, the main library at WashU. I ran to him a few days later with a pile of books. Right? It was Bob Buller's book that just came out. Uh, it was Charles Lee's Toxic Waste and Race. The sociologist had just been publishing on it. Uh, it was so fascinating to me. And then I wrote an article uh, on environmental justice. I think it was the first law professor to write an article on it uh, called uh, The Distributional Side of Environmental Law, Promoting Environmental Justice at Northwestern Law Review. Is that I, I always hear classic sort of white male liberal, right, <laughs> uh, interested in these issues. And I had never thought about it. And I knew my, co my peers had that as well. So it made me dive into it for the first time. And it made me rethink how I thought about environmental law uh, generally, about distributional issues. It made me discover what you were just talking about, uh, that in the early 1970s, late 60s, uh, the civil rights leaders, uh, Gary Hatcher, mayor of Gary, Indiana, Mayor Hatcher, I remember his first name offhand, uh, Mayor of Gary, Indiana, said environmentalism has done what George Wallace, the segregationist, mm -hmm. was never able to do, distract the American people from the needs uh, of the black communities across this country. Uh, and so at the same time that the, a lot of the black civil rights leaders were seeing this as a distraction uh, and as something taking away from their 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 needs and they're compelling. The environmentalists were adopting like the civil rights movement uh, mm -hmm. tactics. Uh, a lot of the early environmentalists had marched in civil rights marches in the 60s. Uh, then they went to law school. And what did they create? The Natural Resource Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, then the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. That was no happenstance, right? It was the, it was the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, they were adopting the rhetoric, the language, the tactics of Thurgood Marshall using courts. Uh, and it never occurred to them or to me that there was something they were doing which actually was not just ignoring uh, the environmental issues, the human health, public health issues of black communities, but actually making things worse for them by not addressing their needs, by not focusing on their concerns, by not having citizen suits brought to address the environmental issues of those neighborhoods. So it's a huge wake-up call uh, to me uh, when Kevin Brown walked into my office. She was in my seminar uh, in 1989. And it's made me rethink ever since, not just environmental justice issues, but fairness issues in environmental law. Uh, that can be fairness issues, not just the EJ communities, which I care tremendously about, uh, but also about communities which are sometimes adversely affected uh, because of environmental restrictions by the loss of their jobs and their economies. Uh, and environmental needs to take those things into account. If we don't, uh, then we do it at our peril. And that's what's happened, uh, both on the right and on the left. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting as, as we're kind of talking this through. It's a, you know, it's a really interesting story, a kind of personal history there. And, um, well, actually, I have, I have, a, I have, I have a, maybe a quick question, and then I wanted to you know, integrate this a little bit with some of the other issues that we've been talking about. So at, at that time when you were kind of first kind of um, – you know, they had this experience of of really thinking through the the kind of racialized dimensions of environmental harm and environmental policy. Where was class something that you know would have already been on your mind? And it was the it was the um, it was the kind of the racial dimensions that that was um, kind of just coming up not just with you but within the whole field. Obviously, um, was was class something that was already on people's mind, or was it really? 
folks just weren't thinking about this from a distributional kind of group level, race, class, maybe gender is in there too, um, yeah. kind I, of perspective. I, I think, yeah, I don't think they were thinking about it. And actually, this is what happened early on environmental justice. And that is when you start writing and thinking about it, there was a huge effort to say there's no race here. This is just mm. class. Mm. Uh, and so the debate became whether or not this was just a, another class-based issue or whether it's a racial issue too. Um, and so the class dimension of it, which obviously does exist because it's both, that became the response of people to say, no, you're wrong. There's no racial dimension to it. It's just a class base. It's just right. an academic based issue. Uh, and that was, that really angered the environmental justice movement to say there's no race associated with it. I pretty quickly took the side there was a racial uh, dimension to it as well. And I think a lot of the statistical analysis since then have shown that obviously there's a class-based issue, uh, but there's a racial civil rights dimension to it as well, which can't be ignored. But interestingly, that became the sort of the way to diminish the EJ movement early on and say, well, of course there is. That's just, a, that's just an econ class-based issue. Uh, right. I think it was really important to establish uh, that it was that it was both, but it did make me think about the issue uh, from both a racial and also a class-based issue. I wrote an article fairly early on after that called "Fairness in Environmental Law," uh, which is about distribution writ large. It was about EJ and race, but it was also about the takings issue. Uh, I that's my one area of litigation. I've, I've, re- I've litigated a lot of takings issues in the Supreme Court. I always take the side of government that something is not a regulatory takings. The very first brief I wrote uh, was a regulatory takings case, Agins v. City of Tiburon. Uh, I've done a lot of Supreme Court briefs and arguments. The last case I argued a few years ago was Murphy, Wisconsin. Again, on behalf of government, happy to say we won uh, that case, which gets harder to do these days. But, but I wrote separately about the fact the fact that I don't think something is a taking as a matter of law doesn't mean I think there's no fairness issues there. And that legislatures, as a matter of legislative grace, should find ways to compensate people for these disruptive measures, which we now need. Uh, it's one thing to say it's not constitutionally compelled. It's another thing to say that it's not as a matter of legislative grace, how you should treat people, how you should think about these transition issues. And one of the issues I wrote about back then in that issue and that article called Fairness and Environmental Law has, has come home to roost in a really unpleasant way because I also wrote about criminal law. And I wrote about my worry that the failure to take account of the fact that there were the mens rea issues uh, for some of the environmental statutes, and I later wrote an article about this, how there was some potential unfairness in applying in a very sort of undisciplined way all environmental statutes to make them felonies without a, a mens rea, which required that level of criminal culpability associated with it, put those statutes at risk uh, for being applied in an unfair way. Uh, and I wrote about it then, that I wrote a big article about my worry, not that the law shouldn't have a criminal dimension, they should, but you need to make sure the person who was convicted of it had a criminal culpability associated, which warranted a felony conviction. And something about the nature of environmental law made that hard to do. And we've seen that come back to hurt us just right a couple weeks ago in the Sackett case, uh, where the court uses the criminal dimension uh, of the Clean Water Act, which is a good thing, but they use that as an excuse to cut back on the scope of the statute dramatically uh, throughout. Uh, So I think these fairness issues that, again, if you don't pay attention to them, you let them go by, they come back to hurt you. They've come back to hurt us politically. And now with a Supreme Court decision, which is devastating the clean water, they've come back to hurt us environmentally as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's, 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 it's really, it's really interesting. And as you note, the, um, that just kind of just to go back to something we were saying a little bit earlier, the, um, uh, the, the response of many in the environmental community was to kind of substitute or to argue that that it was all about class and it wasn't about race and and folks are just some folks anyway are, are more comfortable I think talking about class than than race and but I think the conversation has come a long way since then. Um, 
you know, one of the, um, as we're talking through this, one of the dynamics that, you know, maybe I'd be curious your thoughts on is in our political system, in a, in a way, where we are right now is much more focused on the distributional consequences of environmental policy than, than it had been in the past. And what one way of articulating that, or one way of kind of interpreting our current moment is the parties have just kind of adopted you know, different constituencies that are differentially impacted by environmental policies. And so the Democratic Party has become much more oriented and the, and the environmental movement within the, which really frankly these days is mostly within the Democratic Party, much more oriented around justice issues, environmental justice. Um, and, you know, um, and, and is also trying in some sense, I think to, you know, um, do things like build community with like unions and, and, and other traditional constituencies within the Democratic Party that they had been somewhat oppositional to in the past. And then, the, but the Republican Party is really focused on the distributional consequences on the other side, the distribution of the cost of environmental protection. And so, you know, Trump making a big deal about coal, you know, the, the so-called war on coal, um, you know, uh, fundraising a bunch from fossil fuel companies, emphasizing electricity, electricity prices and the like. So, so I'm curious what you think of that, that read of the situation. I mean, is, is there a sense, this would be very optimistic, um, that, you know, actually this is just the natural way that our system deals with when it's focusing on distribution, which is, is a key thing in environmental policy, is that parties are going to pick different actors out there and they're going to kind of um, advocate for their interests. So the Republican Party is advocating for the interests of the, of the, the payers of the costs and uh, the Democratic Party is advocating for the interests of the folks who bear undue environmental burdens. And that's just like our system right now. Um, and maybe that's, a, I mean, so, so I'm curious if, if we're gonna, maybe the question is to, to try to articulate this is if we're kind of in a mode of recognizing and focusing on the, the reality that environmental policy and law has very substantial distributional element, um, both on the, on the harm of, of environmental pollution side and on the cost side. Um, can we anticipate anything other than just straight polarization over that, I guess, where yeah. the parties are kind of picking people? Like, how do, how do, how do we do both things, I guess, is the question. Um, focus on distribution and not be overly polarized. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think there is a pathway uh, out of this, uh, whether we can reach it uh, in all the sort of noise that everyone makes. Uh, the pathway, I think, is twofold with respect to distribution. Uh, uh, and one is that those the costs um, of pollution and climate change uh, aren't just on some communities. They're also on a lot of red communities. There are a lot of uh, local towns around the place who need drinking water and the rest. A lot of them are going to suffer from climate change, not just in the long term and the near term. So I think it's making those communities realize that the consequences aren't just on other people. Um, they are actually on their own rural communities. And we have a big rural-urban divide. In the United States. Uh, there, there's a need they have for clean air. There's a need they have for clean water. There are real consequences to them in their lives. Uh, if they're, you know, in the fishing industry, uh, if they're in the tourism industry, if they're in the recreational industry, there's real value to them uh, to having climate change address, water pollution address, non-point source pollution you alluded to earlier address, and, and that they feel near-term it's got to be that people don't pay attention to long term and they never will. Right. It's not built in their cognitive behavior. But there, there really is a near term cost to them and benefit to them of these laws. And we just have to do a better job of selling it. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation, uh, which is just ripe for the picking, is that if you have this kind of shift in the economy necessary uh, to address these issues, there are enormous economic opportunities. Uh, that, you know, if we're going to establish sort of things other than dependence on fossil fuel and coal, uh, the number of business opportunities out there, uh, there's private sectors. And you know, our colleague who you know very well, Michael Vanderberg uh, at Vanderbilt has written a lot about this very effectively. Uh, there, are, there are huge business opportunities to address these issues. Uh, the businesses and services uh, that can produce electricity, uh, energy source with less carbon 
they're going to make a gazillion dollars. Uh, the ones who can do solar and, and wind and hydrogen fuel, uh, there are enormous economic opportunities out there. Uh, and those will, if, those, if you spread out those economic opportunities uh, and with those climate disruptors as opposed to the fossil fuel incumbents, um, there's a way here to have our cake and eat it too. We just have to make sure we can distribute the benefits of that uh, as, as broadly as possible and make those communities aware uh, of, of those benefits. Uh, there are a lot of national law firms now which don't represent the fossil fuel industry. They represent the disruptors. That's uh, why you saw right, the power industry file in, in support of the clean power plant in the West Virginia case. It's why when you turn on your Super Bowl ads, right, what do you see? Ad after ad after ad about electric cars. Because the auto manufacturer realized we can make money with this. We can do this. And this is where the future is. Uh, it's why the lending industry isn't going to ignore climate change when they're setting up, uh, you know, doing investments. Why the insurance industry isn't going to ignore climate risks. Uh, if we can have the marketplace be let loose and send the right signals, and the signals both in terms of disincentives and incentives, positive incentives, there is a way out of this. If we can sort of avoid some of the noise uh, of the politicians on either side who keep wanting to pitch this as good versus evil, uh, as opposed to you know a, a pathway uh, to the future. So it's gonna it's gonna be hard uh, to the extent that. People tend to see this as like, these are good people, these are bad people. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I tend to be hopeful. With that said, Michael, if you came to my office and looked at the wall next to my desk, uh, you would see what I think you see on the, on the wall next to the desk of every environmental law professor in the country. And that is, there's kind of a dent in our walls. Because <laughs> we feel like we've been banging our head against that wall for about 30 years uh, trying to get this message across. Uh, I hope it's finally getting across. I hope we see a sea change. Uh, obviously, if, if uh, Donald Trump wins re-election, uh, that could be a disaster. Uh, and people need to do better about electing people um, who are less partisan on that. It's hard with our political system of gerrymandering. But I think that's the only, the only way out of this is through elections and not through the courts. Well, that that I that I certainly certainly agree about. I can't imagine any, any situation, and maybe we could just spend a few minutes talking about the courts, um, uh, for just to clarify exactly the degree to which that that that's going to be the case. So, so you mentioned the Sackett decision, and and you know, there's a there's an interesting arc of the courts that you you, you know you describe in in the making of environmental law. Obviously, in the early days of U.S. environmental law, you had um, judicial champions of uh, environmental protection really saw the role of courts in this, you know, transform, not exactly transformative in the sense of we're going to use the Constitution and courts to transform society, but at least playing a, a, a productive pro-environmental role, ensuring that administrative agencies are, you know, um, advancing the goals that were adopted in the major environmental statutes and so on. And in any case, that's that's changed over time, especially at the Supreme Court. And we've we've had a couple of really huge decisions in the last couple of years um, on the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act that um, that are going to reverberate for some time. So you, you've you've litigated before the Supreme Court. You've been a Supreme Court watcher for for many years. One question I, I had, and it was a bit of a you know, kind of comes out of the arguments in the book is. I'm curious about your views about the court these days, basically. Yeah. Like, I think you have uh, some, and there's a sense in which, um, you know, like, for example, you talk about, I think, Mass, Mass oh, sorry, um, West Virginia v. EPA. And, you know, maybe there's two ways of reading that. So one way of reading that is it's kind of cynical. It is just um, anti-environmental or anti-EPA or anti-administrative state. It's pro-fossil fuel and, you know, ends-oriented way of stripping away the, um, the ability of government basically to address climate change. That'd be one reading. Another reading would be that it's a legitimate uh, expression of concern about separation of powers, 
uh, you know, democratic legitimacy of agency decision-making and the like, right? Those would be two different readings. The Sackett decision could be read similarly. It's, it's, it's kind of a cynical way of, of undermining the Clean Water Act and reducing just, you know, just generally kind of doing favors for rural communities who are interested in, you know, getting easier access, you know, getting out of, the, of a particular kind of uh, regime of environmental quality uh, having to do with wetlands management, or you could read it as, you know, as you were mentioning even a little earlier, as addressing genuine fairness concerns with respect to the application of the criminal law. So, so I'm curious about your general read of of the court these days. Um, are you are you more? Um, are you? Uh, yeah, just what what is your general reading of the court these days? What can we expect, and and what do you think of the court's motivations? Are are you as as cynical as the cynics might be, or do you do you still see principal decision making there? Yeah, I, I tend to. Again, maybe where I'm naive, I, I tend to be a fan of the court. They're making that hard uh, to be. Um, here's what I would say, and I, and I view the West Virginia VPA case uh, and the Sackett case uh, differently. Uh, I'm not a fan of either one. I, I think I think both of them are decisions where the court should have gone the other way. Um, I view the West Virginia versus EPA case where the court upheld the Trump administration's repeal of the Clean Power Plan as irresponsible. Um, I, I, I can't say that it's like out of bounds in terms of legal reasoning. But I think it's irresponsible, and I'll tell you why. The Sackett case, I think, is far worse uh, than the Clean Power Plan case. So in the Clean Power Plan case, the West Virginia case, uh, the court you know, agreed that EPA had no authority uh, to issue the Clean Power Plan in the first instance. Um, and I, I wish they hadn't, but that ruling... Uh, by itself, um, I can't say is crazy, right? I mean, I defended the Clean Power Plan. I filed a brief in the D.C. Circuit. But I never thought the legal issue was a slam dunk. I always thought it was hard. Uh, and I thought it was legitimately a hard question, whether you could take the word system that Congress passed uh, in 1970 and allow EPA to do a, a fabulous thing, the Clean Power Plan. Fabulous, right? A wonderfully from economic perspective, environmental perspective, uh, political perspective, wonderful way to try to jumpstart us and get us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from one of the largest sources, existing coal-fired power plants. But whether or not it actually fits the statute, that was a legitimately harder, harder issue, uh, whether you could take. I thought the court should have and could have very responsibly upheld it. But I couldn't say it was compelled to do so. Uh, so the fact they ruled against uh, the Clean Power Plan, that case, upholding the repeal, I think that ruling by itself, as disappointed as I was, I thought it was defensible from an intellectual perspective. Um, I thought, however, that it was irresponsible because it failed to take account of political realities of where we are. Uh, and that is to require Congress to have actually what the court requires, clear congressional authorization. I thought its test was too demanding, and especially too demanding in light of the reality of where we are, and that is that Congress doesn't pass anything. Uh, and I thought it was close enough that courts should have helped upheld the Clean Power Plan and, and change the default principle, make the other side have legislation to show the EPA doesn't have this authority, uh, rather than require clear congressional authorization in support of the Clean Power Plan. So while I couldn't say it was intellectually dishonest, I thought it was very poor judging uh, in terms of the role of the courts and the standard they imposed under the major question doctrine to require this clear congressional authorization when we know we're never going to get it. Uh, so I really uh, criticized the decision, uh, but I could understand as a matter of abstract principle where those justices were coming from, even I thought they were misguided in their application to climate change. The Sackett case, though, uh, the Sackett is far different. Uh, in Sackett, the court has taken a pretty settled view of the Clean Water Act for five decades about how you have to go beyond uh, traditional navigable waters uh, and go beyond this notion of a dictionary definition of waters um, to protect the waters of the United States as Congress dictated, to protect the preserve the physical, chemical, biological integrity of the waters, to define navigable waters in the statute as waters of the United States, legislative history making clear why they did that. In this case, they took 
an existing, very important program that's persisted for decades, and they completely gutted it, uh, going back to dictionaries. Uh, a view which really doesn't pay attention to the purpose of the statute and the language of the statute and the legislative history of the statute. Uh, so I found that result very disturbing. If the court had done the narrow viewing in favor of the Sacketts per se, that Brett Kavanaugh supported, uh, that Justice Sotomayor Jackson uh, supported, that Justice Kagan supported, that would have been a loss which I would have not applauded, but I would have understood. Uh, but instead, the court basically completely upended uh, a law which has been very successful. And it's going to make it really hard to make the law successful. And that's because, as the court recognized unanimously in 1986, and they said Congress had, water moves in hydrologic cycles. It moves from here to there over time and space. Uh, and you can't even protect the waters that they say they care about unless you regulate discharges into the waters for which they have a significant hydrologic nexus to. Uh, so it actually makes the law really hard to do its purposes, and there's no awareness of it. And that's just the majority. If you take a look at Clarence Thomas uh, and Gors Neil Gorsuch's separate concurring opinion, it is, I would say, with all generous strategy intended, it is crazy. Uh, and it's either incompetent lawyering or maybe dishonest lawyering. Hmm. I don't say that lightly. Uh, because according to that separate concurrence, which no opinion takes issue with or addresses at all, that separate concurrence provides that the Clean Water Act of 1972 basically does little more than the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899, 97, uh, and 92. Uh, it provides that it only applies to that are in fact navigable, and it only regulates discharges to the extent they affect navigability. Not pollution and water quality, but navigability. That is insane. Uh, and they, you, they come to that conclusion uh, based upon a reading of Daniel Ball, which is remarkably unpersuasive, uh, by saying the Supreme Court long ago said navigable waters and water of the United States means the same thing. And that's how you decide that's all that Congress intended. It was no big change in the jurisdictional scope uh, in 1972, uh, when Congress made it absolutely clear the intended change of jurisdictional scope, uh, and the Supreme Court opinion upon which they rely for their saying the two were used interchangeably and they mean the same thing. If you look back to the Daniel Ball case, how many times do you think they use the words waters of the United States in the Daniel Ball case, which is a mid 19th century case? Five, four, actually none. Mm -hmm. The term water in the United States does not appear once in the Daniel Ball case. Uh, what appears is the term navigable waters in the United States. Well, that's not the same thing. Uh, so you can say navigable waters means the same thing as navigable waters in the United States. You can't say navigable waters means the same thing as waters in the United States. Uh, what worries me is that uh, majority doesn't address that issue at all, and neither does Kavanaugh concurrence, which we have the justice join, or Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson separate concurrence. So it's just out there as an invitation to lower courts. Uh, so I think the second case is far more troubling because it is, threatens to destroy an existing very important fundamental program rather than West Virginia, which prevented like a really ambitious, wonderful future move. Uh, and its reasoning, uh, I think, is very unpersuasive. Yeah. So maybe just looking and and with the final question, which is, um, so given the the state of the courts um, and the the reality that we're likely to look at, you know, a court with a similar composition for for some time now, um, you know, possibly decades, you know, if we do build the political will um, necessary to you know pass you know, substantial climate legislation. I mean, obviously there's the Inflation Reduction Act, but, you know, say even a regulatory right. approach. Um, do you think the courts will at least get out of the way or do you think that the courts are going to continue to be a, you know, even even in the face of congressional action would be a, a substantial obstacle? They're clearly going to be an obstacle to administrative right. action. Yeah, I think of congressional action, I think they won't be. 
it's, it's, it's why we need legislation. I, I don't think they will. Uh, if we can get that language in the statute, uh, then I think as conservative as they are, for some of them, like Just Alito, who votes basically against whatever the environmental favor result is in every single case, uh, in the last 15 such cases, he's voted on the environmental side one time. That's not true for anybody else, right? But you look at a case like, uh, you know, uh, the county of Maui uh-huh. versus the Hawaii uh, Wildlife uh, Fund uh, case recently, where the court ruled, what, I think it was 7 to 2, uh, in favor of the environmentally preferred position. Uh, there is give there among the justices. If you can convince them the language, uh, and convince them of the result uh, and how untoward the other result is. So I haven't given up at all with this court, but it's made me realize they're not going to do us any favors. Uh, we're going to have to have language uh, from Congress or from states. Uh, I think on, st- on state laws, uh, there's a chance uh, because Justice Gorsuch has such a thing uh, for states' rights. Um, and uh, I think that we'll see uh, some positive things. The National Pork Producers case, just uh-huh. dormant commerce clause case, animal cruelty law uh, out of California. Right, split the court all over the place. But they ultimately upheld uh, the California law there. Uh, so I think there's give, there's justice we can work with. I think we'll need for federal law better statutory language. For states, I think actually the court's divisiveness on these issues. There's several opinions out there in different environmental cases where it's state law, where we actually see the court reach a different result. And even the Clean Water Act in the County of Maui case, we got a really favorable result in that case. Uh, But we can't assume they're going to do us a favor. We have to be smart in how we present records uh, and litigation to try to get it done. Great. All right. Well, um, well, thanks for, for the, for the perspectives is, you know, it's a wonderful book. You've obviously made huge contributions to the field over the years. So uh, thanks. Thanks for that as well. And um, it's been a a super fascinating conversation. I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, Michael. I I appreciate it a lot. I've read a lot of your, uh, of your work and I'm a big fan of it. And of course, someone we're both a fan of uh, Ricky Rivez at OMB. That's pretty exciting. It's exciting. Uh, It's exciting times for sure. It's exciting to see him there and, and to, and to see his work uh, coming out of there, it's, he's the perfect person, the pers- perfect place at the at the right time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So we'll, we'll see we'll see how we'll see how that all unfolds. All right. Well, take care. Thanks very much. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.